This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to For The State, the show that brings journalists together to discuss the week's media affairs. Coming to you from 2SER on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, my name's Jack Fisher. Did Bill Shorten say something sexist on the campaign trail this week or has he been set up by Channel 9's Today Show? We'll take a look at how new media like Vice and BuzzFeed have made identity politics central to their news. Joining me in this studio, Alan Clark, Aboriginal Affairs reporter for BuzzFeed Australia. Hi, Alan. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. Also in the studio, writer with Daily Life, Jenny Noyes. Hi, Jenny. Hi, how are you? Very well, thanks. And from the Centre for Independent Studies, policy analyst Trisha Jar. Hi, Trisha. Hey. Welcome to Fourth Estate. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with us via Twitter, you can do so at Fourth Estate AU. That's all letters, no numbers. So on the campaign trail this week, Bill Shorten has unveiled his party's $3 billion childcare package. And in doing so, he's made a comment that did not impress Lisa Wilkinson on Channel 9's Today. Let's take a listen. But one statement from the press conference has not gone down well. Take a look. Let's face it, men in Australia rely on the women in Australia to do the childcare and to organise the childcare. Now, polls consistently show that childcare is a major vote decider for many Australian families. But when Bill Shorten describes women as having the second job and that men, quote, rely on women to take care of all things when it comes to looking after the kids, in other words, so men can get on with doing all the important stuff, isn't he simply entrenching a stereotype of women as second-class citizens? So that small clip of Bill Shorten speaking, it sounds pretty bad. The thing is, it was just a small clip of what he had to say. So let's hear the context. I understand how difficult it is for a working woman with the kids trying to work out how on earth does she go to work if 80% of what she's earning gets eaten up in childcare fees. I understand that people are trying to work out can the, can the, I mean, let's face it, men in Australia rely on the women in Australia to do the childcare and to organise the childcare. So what I would say to a family sitting on the couch is this, I'll make sure that it's easier for both of you to go to work if that's what you choose to do. Trisha, did you read sexism into what Bill Shorten had to say? No, I didn't. But that was because I'm really across the policy issues and I kind of got the impression, I got, I understood what he was trying to say because those are the kinds of issues that come up a lot when it comes to childcare, family tax benefits, um, women being able to work, things like that. But I guess I kind of looked at that and I thought, well, everyone's here, you know, kind of screaming about how there's a context and, you know, I fully agree there's a context and his expression was just a bit, you know, unpolished. But I kind of feel like other politicians wouldn't necessarily be given the same sort of quarter. Now, Jenny, you've said that uh, Bill Shorten's words were clunky. Do you reckon Lisa Wilkinson's call-out indicates that it's tougher for politicians to be clunky in front of the media nowadays? Yes, I think that's true. Um, 
obviously, you know, it's quite easy to, um, especially if you are kind of working from a TV angle and you're just grabbing something like a 20 or like a five second grab or something, you know, it is very easy to paint that in a particular light. Um, so yes, and and people will jump on on what's perceived to be a gaff. Um, but I do think that it is up to journalists to um, interpret for people. And I don't think that it was a fair interpretation of what he said um, by the media. I think anyone who looked at the context, and there's even more context to the comments that he made than what you just played, that indicate that what he was actually saying was acknowledging the situation is a sexist situation, that women are still, uh, you know, by far the primary parent for most ch- for most children in families in Australia. Um, and that his policy is about trying to redress that balance. He didn't say it in the best way, but I think that, um, you know, anyone who was listening who had who actually listened to everything he said and knew the context um, would know that his comments were not sexist. And to paint them in that way by taking a very, very small grab and then verbaling what he said around that, which is what Lisa Wilkinson did, I think that was really just poor journalism. Okay, Alan, is Lisa just cynically manipulating this guy's words here? Is that what's going on? Yeah, look, I think it's a it's sort of a poor choice of words from Bill. Um, as Trisha was saying, the policy around it supports a point that was hidden in there, but it just didn't come out very clearly. And I think uh, Lisa is maybe overstretching uh, a little bit when she says it's sort of outright sexist. Um, yeah, I think it's just naive of Bill and uh, a bit unpolished. Patricia, childcare policy is your focus. Do you think Bill's word, frank words, as he describes it, do you think they're more damaging to the discussion around childcare than perhaps he realises? Uh, I think they were damaging in that they distracted from the real issue. And one of the things that you know has kind of come across in this just debate now, I mean, the Greens came out with their childcare, childcare policy today. And on the whole, there's not a huge amount of difference between the three parties' childcare policies, there's there's difference at the margins, but they they're committing roughly the same amount of funding. The same the 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 core principles are roughly the same. The Greens' policy is basically a mismatch a mishmash of Labor's and the Liberals, which is a sort of a weird com- uh, position for the Greens to be in. But I think the fundamental issue is that the issues that affect women and families in general and their work life, childcare, whatever choices are actually a lot more than just childcare. And this is something the Productivity Commission acknowledged when they put put out their report and they said that, you know, we could, you know, recreate and rebadge and restructure the childcare payment system, which is pretty much exactly what the government's done, but at the end of the day it would have a very kind of limited impact on the choices that women are able to make, um, given that it's also about tax tax rates, um, what's referred to as effective marginal tax rates that are caused by the withdrawal of certain payments, so Family Tax Benefit Part A, Family Tax Benefit Part B. These predominantly affect either low-income women or, or women who are working, uh, who are moving from part-time or casual work into more full-time work. Those sorts of things are the things that really kind of impact um, impact the way, the, the decisions that families make about 
these issues. And that is something that none of the politicians have talked about at all. And so while Bill Shorten was saying 80% of the childcare fees, that was, that was another thing that I thought was funny that no one, none of the journalists certainly seemed to pick up on, is that that situation is pretty much entirely, it's almost not really possible. What he's really describing is a combination of income tax rates, a combination of um, family tax benefit withdrawal, increases in out-of-pocket childcare fees, and reductions in childcare subsidies as income increases. It's very, it's very complicated, and he's he was just kind of able to kind of get away with the fact that no one's really talking about this issue, and so of the other parties. And so you see a monologue like Lisa's there. Is it perhaps telling that she hasn't actually tried to dissect the actual policy rather than go on on what a small snippet of his words sounds like? Well, I mean, in fairness to her, that's kind of that's the kind of journalism she does. I mean, there's, I think there are the bigger problem for me is not, you know, the kind of commercial television journalist who's trying to communicate to a broad bunch of people, but people who specialise in policy and say that they are good at analysis, who aren't really doing their job properly. And then are kind of, you know, we're still standing on the outside saying, you know, there was context involved. It's like, well, yeah, there was context, but were you across the policy detail? Well, no. And there are various reasons for that. But yeah, I, I just... I don't want to get into a situation where we've got kind of journalists slanging each other because it's just kind of even when you're when you're a person who spends your entire day reading productivity commission reports, you're just kind of like, yeah, what? So what? Jenny, was anyone going to interpret Bill's words as a statement about how the world should be? It seems that some people did. Uh, people in the Liberal Party did, um, or the Nationals as well. Because Fiona... no surprises there. No, um, but I don't think. It, I mean. When you actually listen to what he said, I don't think it's possible to uh, read it that he was saying that that is how it should be. He definitely was saying that's how it is and it shouldn't be like that because people, you know, at the end there he said that for the family on the couch he wants to make both parents be able to do go to work if that's what they want to do. So, you know, I think that's a pretty obvious statement um, there of what he actually thinks should be the case. Whether or not his policy actually um, creates the conditions for that is another thing, but I think his actual comments about what the situation is for families were, apart from being pretty clumsy, you know, they were fair. Okay, and Alan, we're going to get to this in our next topic in a little bit, but this kind of, I guess, like a call-out on Breakfast TV, is that the place we're used to seeing that sort of a call-out? I think... um it's the bread and butter of morning TV. But I think also uh, what we're kind of getting to as journalists, it's, it's a very long election campaign. People are fatigued, um, particularly media people. And you need to look at the last few weeks where there hasn't been many major announcements, haven't been many major kind of scandals or controversies. So uh, essentially, you know, morning television uh, is going to take what they can get and try and amp it up as much as they can to engage viewers. Um, Otherwise, you know, the majority of Australians uh, are just getting on with their life. You know, a lot of people I meet day to day in my reporting just um, have zoned out from the election. I mean, you know, even the media, I've talked to our political reporters at BuzzFeed, on the campaign trail it's a constant sort of you know well let's you know what's interesting this week or today and pick up any major newspaper um, 
in the in the past week, and you'll find very little about actually what the politicians actually doing on the campaign trail, which says a lot. So I think um, you know you can't sort of blame a medium like breakfast television because they're all about ratings, they're all about controversy. Um, at the moment, sort of jumping on uh, on an issue and having a rant about it and having it go viral or get out there and spark debate, that's kind of, you know, that's in fashion at the moment as well. Well, it's something that shows like The Project uh, have shown themselves to be very good at. Does it work for, for Nines today? Uh, we had, I think, Carl Stefanovic a few weeks ago a monologue about Peter Dutton's comments there about about refugees. Is is it what they're what they're good at? I think so something like the project is though very well um, researched, thoroughly researched, uh, fact checked, and often it's an issue that overwhelmingly um, you know stands out, and the public have a, an active interest or passion in. So, I mean, you're talking about Carl and Dutton's comments. I mean, it, it was a incredibly offensive um, comments to to migrants and immigrants and refugees. So, um, and Carl has that personal connection. So I think that shone through and that's why that stands out as a sort of standout um, piece of television. And if you look, uh, Dutton has um, not been in the media at all since then, really. In fact, Vice uh, did a piece about finding Dutton on the campaign trail. And he is a key. Working in the shadows. Yeah, yeah, where is he? <laughs> and he is a key. Um, you know, he's a he's a key minister, and and he's not there. He's not on the front bench. So, um, although the problem is, then everyone wants to emulate that success of that type of you know personal rant or personal um, you know a live opinion piece. I think. Lisa kind of missed the mark right, on these when, comments. When I saw this, I thought, and I saw that Lisa had called out Bill Shorten over sexism. I thought, well, okay, here we go, because I think the two leaders have been so neck and neck and neither particularly popular. It's almost as if the media is just waiting for that one slip up that's going to that's gonna determine it, isn't it? Yeah, well, you have a bunch of journalists who are who have been working on this now for weeks on on the campaign trail. And obviously they're all just sort of chomping at the bit for something to happen. <laughs> in a way. Um, Lisa would have had a chat with her producer that would have gone through a few hands before it even got onto television. So um, I don't know who made that call, but yeah, I didn't think they were that inflammatory, those comments from Shorten. You're listening to For The State. My name's Jack Fisher and I'm speaking with Alan Clark, Trisha Jar, and Jenny Noyes. Now there's a new media outlet that I follow on Facebook and it's called Mike. They're a competitor to sites like BuzzFeed and Vice, and they have a great-looking website. They make money through branded content. But when they started out back in 2011, they weren't called Mike. They were called Policy Mike. Nowadays, they've got a bunch of sections around policy, food, tech, and style, etc. But one of their most interesting sections, and the section that I always seem to land on from Facebook, is called Identities Mike. It's a section that Mike says makes them leaders in reporting and writing on race, class, gender, and sexuality, with a critical focus on how these categories impact our lives as millennials. Trisha, as a young person who's quite invested in, in the world of policy, how do you feel about the politics that are particular to our generation? Um, I kind of feel as though while identities politics can be great in that 
I feel like identity politics, to the extent that it's adopted in terms of editorial decisions, in terms of decisions that are made, in terms of what get what content's propagated, what's produced on the journalistic side of things, it can be something to enrich and it can be something to diversify and it's a means to shine a light on kind of heterodox viewpoints, different views on policy and things like that. The concern that I've had more recently is that I don't want to see identity politics uh, and I guess the the subset of that, which is lived experience and that kind of genre of writing start to push out the role of expert commentary that is informed by research and I guess an in-depth knowledge of the relevant policy issues when it comes to actually making government when it comes to like holding governments to account and for the decisions that they make because I think that while it's really important to have diverse viewpoints that can I guess I guess complement what what it is that experts might have to offer I don't want to go down a at times almost anti-intellectual path that I see some commentary on identity politics and identity politics issues kind of taking like I I don't want to say it's representative or anything like that it's just something that I find concerning right so when should identities be important to our politics and when should they not I think it really depends I mean it's I guess I mean Alan you'll probably have a lot of lot to say on this so I don't want to get too much into it but I mean as far as like informing the discussion on how certain policies and certain modes of thinking, certain social norms might influence or impact different segments of society, in terms of having that discussion and bringing that to the forefront, I think that's really important. But I guess, yeah, it really comes back to not wanting to push out politics, pol- uh, rather discussion, in-depth discussions on policy because I've seen a lot with my friends who they engage quite strongly with identity politics and they'll kind of say something on Facebook or share an article and they'll kind of regurgitate a whole lot of stuff around and some of it will just be, you know, generic kind of commentary on social norms and how we ought to treat each other and how the world ought to be and that's not the kind of thing that I've got a problem with. It's when they kind of misrepresent things like how government works or how policy is made, or how governments manage competing interests, or how really kind of basic things that I think are really integral to a liberal democratic society. That's the kind of thing that I have a problem with. And I guess that's kind of, to the extent that that is pushing out discussions on policy, that's that's the that's the concern that I have. Okay, so Alan, at BuzzFeed, I mean, do, do you feel that uh, identities are fast dominating or or taking a a bigger role in the sort of reporting that our young people are consuming yes and i think i see it i see it a lot with with new um new media like you look at places like vice um who are doing it really well buzzfeed does it very well but outside of the news cycle so i think buzzfeed is an anomaly in that we do obviously our main audience is millennials or young people uh, but our news uh, BuzzFeed News has sort of carved out its own kind of path in that we I mean 
a lot of us are traditional journalists where identity um, within our work has sort of, you know, we don't use it. Taken aback. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and I think I look at my work. I mean, a lot of younger reporters now are growing, you know, sort of starting their professional career amidst all of this identity politics and they're thinking this is what media is today whereas when I started I'm a lot older <laughs> when I started <laughs> I mean being Aboriginal was one thing um, doing Indigenous Affairs reporting was another and I was told you know so I had to be almost obsessively objective about everything um, to the point of it being ridiculous um, and not allowing my own identity or my own politics or my own upbringing to to be infused in my work over the years um i've i've you know i i really love the the styles of traditional journalism and looking at both sides even if i don't like it even you know even if something is um you know sort of doesn't smell right to me but buzzfeed has that unique capacity to inject traditional journalism make it youth orientated but also utilize people's own personality or identity but not take it too far so i think um our if you look at our buzz section it's all about identity all of the most popular stuff the the lists the quizzes is all identity based and it's all of our writers it's all of their own experiences whereas the journalism is often a very separate beast to that so right and why do you think it is that identities have such a currency uh, in new media? I think young people just want to connect with other young people and what's important to them. Um, I think in terms of our news at Buzz as well is that we don't dumb down news for our young people either. So, I mean, they can access it because we make it accessible to them. We make them understand it. So in terms of election coverage, you know, like, or, or taxes or things like that, we, we put it into perspective and we say, well, these are the objects that will get taxed. This is what you use. And then we bring the politics to them. So, Okay. Jenny, do you think identity issues have just exploded in digital media because traditional media wouldn't give them the airtime? Um, not necessarily, but um, I think it, it makes sense that, it, that people have always been in, more engaged with stories that they can identify with or that have some sort of human element that um, makes the story interesting to them. And I think that, um, you know, that that has probably always been the case, but but because of um, online media kind of proliferating more platforms for people to find these sorts of stories, it uh, people have realised how valuable they can be. Um, and I think, you know, they have also realised that you know, there are audiences out there who don't just want to hear from a straight white male perspective. And there and people are also getting more and more educated on the fact that uh, there are different perspectives out there. You know, we don't want to always be hearing from the same people all the time. Um, maybe, you know, it's more interesting to hear analysis from someone who also has uh, personal um, kind of experience with the topic that they're talking about. Um, and that doesn't mean that you are ignoring necessarily ignoring expert opinions because often experts um, 
will also have personal experience in the topics that they have researched on. Um, you know, you know, so I so I don't think that necessarily um, identity politics has to mean or that there is a move away from looking at policy. And I think that, um, as Alan was saying, you know, the way that BuzzFeed um, kind of integrates news analysis with uh, more of an understanding of how identity politics, um, you know, makes makes the story interesting um, and engages the audience, then I think that that's a good thing. And it's more, you know, I guess the issue is you don't want to always have these first-person stories that are all across the internet. Um, and, and I think these first-person stories aren't always even necessarily identi- identity politics focused either. Um, but, you know, people are interested in these stories, but I think that we can take um, lessons from that interest and that engagement to um, find ways to make policy and analysis more um, kind of engaging for people. Yeah. So, Alan, just to pick up on what Trisha was saying before about, about policy, in your work, you know, you've written about child removals and forced closures of Aboriginal communities. You've also written about Australians being called out for wearing blackface, for instance, or I think last week, a weatherman wearing a, a Native American headdress on television. Which stories hit the mark better with young people? You know, it's really interesting because uh, when I started at BuzzFeed, I told them when they told me they wanted an an Indigenous Affairs round, I said, look, it's not going to do very well. It's not going to get the viral clicks you normally get. It's not going to get the numbers. People just aren't that interested. But they really fought. They really wanted that round. So, um, you know, kudos to my boss, Simon, for fighting for it. And since then, we do encompass everything that makes up, I guess, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander affairs, including child removals or, or... Steve Jacobs on the Today Show wearing a Native American headdress. I mean, what I found that does really well in terms of social media sharing and, and like, uh, virality is, um, you know, what we call outrage stories. So, (laughs) which, you know, if I'm... I'm constantly monitoring social media. I'm always on Facebook because that's how I connect with a lot of my family and friends anyway. But if I see something sort of spinning around on Facebook three, four, five times, getting shared, people are angry about something, then I'll pick it up. That's a story. And I can guarantee you it will, it will if I put it out within, within a few hours of seeing it, it's going to get shared a lot. So, I mean, that sort of BuzzFeed news is day-to-day bread and butter. A lot of those larger issues like policy-based um, stories, uh, you know, the release of the Closing the Gap report, things like that, often are a bit more planned. You know, we might spend a couple of days on them. But, yeah, if I, you know, the it's interesting, the Native American headdress, that did really well because it was, I think, it, it reached an audience that already feels like they're marginalised, they're vulnerable, that no one hears them. So people feel like, oh, you're sticking up for for us. You're saying that Indigenous people and their culture matter you need to respect us so um, our american deputy editor was in town when that happened and he's the one who actually pointed out he goes what is this about he was so shocked he goes do a story so we did a very quick story and it's because an aboriginal man had uh, alec domaji had gotten very angry about it and posted it on facebook and it just 
kept getting shared by Aboriginal people saying this is disrespectful, even though it wasn't part of Indigenous Australian culture. They were just so angry that, you know, a white person would mock another Indigenous person's culture. And it did, you know, it did very well. People, because people feel like they owned it because they, they put it up, they point it out. And then someone follows up on it. And that's happening a lot more now, which is great. So We might have to leave it there because that's all we've got time for on Fourth Estate this week. But thank you to my guests, to Alan Clark, Trisha Jar, and to Jenny Noyes. My name's Jack Fisher. Don't forget you can subscribe to us on iTunes and SoundCloud or your podcast player of choice. You can catch us at the same time next week. 